Online. Sensors online. Weapons online. All systems nominal. Ladies and gentlemen, assorted non-binary listeners and synthetic intelligent consciousness, this is a very special episode of Geek Top 5 slash therapy session for me. Uh, this is the Battletech episode. This is the inner sphere. Thousands of planets colonized by humankind. Once it was united under the Star League. But for the last 300 years, it has been consumed by savage wars. And the great houses, each vying for supremacy, turn to one another. Engaging in a series of conflicts known as the Succession Wars. Amidst this chaos, numerous battlefields sprung up across the inner sphere. Dominated by a hulking war machine known as Battle Max. Piloting these awesome weapons of war are men and women, the elite of the elite, knowing that each battle could be their last. They are Mech Warriors. Yeah. Yeah. All right. It's going to be an intense one. Before we get too far into this, can we please introduce a special guest returning friend of the show and real-life mech warrior, player-versus-player veteran, Jonathan Steven. Hey! Welcome Th- back to the show. Thanks for having me. Always a pleasure. So, yeah, let me just start by saying Battletech is a... I, as I was researching this, I think I got a better handle than I ever had before on how big a property it was at one time. And I don't think that ever occurred to me. It always felt more like it, more, it felt a lot more niche, like something that was just for the three of us in a way. But obviously, it was a lot bigger than that. So to go back to the beginning, it started out as a board game franchise and has blossomed into this huge franchise filled with cartoons, video games, over a hundred novels, source books, you name it. They've done it, and they've gone through thick and thin. They've gone from the highest of highs to the lowest of lows, and they're still kicking, and it's fascinating. And we're going to do a sort of a loose top five, and to start with, we're just going to talk a bit about how we got launched on on this franchise. So, so I, I think, you know, we all go back to elementary school together, and uh, I don't honestly know how Jesse got launched on it, but Jesse certainly got me hooked on the series through MechWarrior 2. I'm sure I played it at your house and then got a copy for myself and played every version of it. MechWarrior 2 was a great game and really got me hooked on this universe. How about you, Steve? Yeah, I think uh, MechWarrior 2 was probably the first PC game I ever played. And wow. it was all, yeah, all thanks to Jesse. And uh, yeah, it kind of, I mean, it all, it just launched everything for me because I was really into the universe and the world and, you know, it just sort of progressed from there. But yeah, of course, my the first love of the, the franchise was from the games. That's fair. I think all of us, for us, the video games are a big part of it. The um, MechWarrior 2 was 1995 and I remember 
I, I feel like the demo came out earlier, but back then, demos were basically just commercials for the games, so it must have been 95, so we were 9 and 10, Jeez. I guess. <laughs> yeah. Hard to imagine. Uh, which, so, I mean, pretty much we were born with, you know, with the series, but 10 years into it, MechWarrior 2 was a huge computer game. We'll go into the details specifically about the game later, but yeah, I played it off of one of those demo CDs that came in a magazine. Uh, which is interesting because both the words CD and magazine are both words that don't mean anything anymore. <laughs> but back in my day, you could get magazines that had these CDs in them, <laughs> demos of computer games. And I installed that demo on the computer of everybody I knew uh, and then graduated up to the full. I think we all ended up with our own separate copies of MechWarrior 2. I remember, I think, Graham, you had the Titanium edition. They had yeah. like, the enhanced graphics and stuff. But yeah, that was how we got into it. I remember having a conversation where it was like, what is it about? And I was like, I have no idea, but it has awesome robots that stomp around and blow stuff up. Now, the, one of the things one of the things that uh, sets you apart from from most people, I think, Jess, is that you have tons of the source books, tons of these books that explain the universe from the board game perspective and give these really in-depth guides on on the mechs. The closest I had to that was the manual from from the Titanium edition of MechWarrior 2. And I I didn't read it quite as obsessively as you read yours, but I did cherish it. And long after I stopped having the CDs, I would still I still have that manual around here somewhere. It's in my house and it's traveled with me through every move I've made and I always flip through it and have these fond memories and feelings connected with it. Why don't we talk a little bit about about how it launched your how that game launched your obsession with that universe yeah i mean should we should we talk a bit about the universe first i mean if like, yeah 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 like, like how did so one of the things that i have you know learned in the years since we first played MechWarrior 2 is that the clans were a real disruptive force in that franchise and the clans were this group that came from another sector of space that that the main characters didn't know about and invaded and started attacking all the familiar characters but for us in that first game the clans were the main characters so how did how did you find out about the greater world of of BattleTech yeah god this is Man, okay, so for context, I mean, we try to do this on this show, so if you've heard this before, slow it down, but, I mean, it's, to start with Battletech, Battletech, Battletech was created in 1984 as, like, a role-playing and tabletop sci-fi setting. Um, I've described it before on the show as Game of Thrones meets Star Wars, it's, it's nobility and politics and backstabbing, but meets lasers and explosions just with giant robots, but because it was meant to to fuel that role playing experience, like it wasn't just a board game like Monopoly or you move pieces around, it was leaning more towards games like Warhammer or Dungeons and Dragons, where players pretended to be in this world. Because of that, there was a huge lore element behind it. A lot of that got called upon in games like Mech Warrior 2, and we didn't know anything about that. What I did figure out eventually is that these video games were sort of the, the second or even third like phase of product they had, right? That tabletop games came first. And so I ended up at a hobby store, and sure enough, I found a box set. I think it was the expansion to the original Battletech tabletop. It was called City Tech which came with a, a manual, like you would for any game, but one that also gave a brief rundown of, okay, here's what's happening in this world. And it's a really cool story. 
Uh, but from there, I started to draw the connections between, you know, all these robots and all the factions they seem to belong to and this complicated world building that was going on. That took me to the novels. A lot of franchise fiction for Battletech. Um, a lot of authors. Uh, Michael A. Stackpole, Blaine Lee Pardot. Uh, there's, anyway, there, there's over a hundred of these paperbacks. Some of them are even good. <laughs> so, <laughs> but games like Mech, the games of MechWarrior 2 took place in a very specific a period of time in the fiction and in between mission briefings and debriefings, which were basically go blow up this building and then good job, you blew up the building. You could call up these things in the game that were these long paragraphs of text just sort of describing what was happening. These were excerpts from these books and there were characters from the books in them. Ulrich Kerensky, Phelan Kell, Phelan Ward, Vander Vinchistu, all characters from these books. So finally, from going to the tabletop game and learning a bit more about it and finding these paperbacks, that's how I managed to put everything together. And frankly, I, I want to use it as a metaphor, but I came to Star Wars the same way. Like I played Rebel Assault on my PC until my mother noticed the TIE Fighters on screen and said, you know, there's a movie of that. <laughs> <laughs> this was the same kind of thing. And then, of course, I immediately came to take it to you guys and forced you guys to read all these books <laughs> to see if you would be as excited about it as I was. Yeah, I do remember us passing around those paperbacks. Yeah. Yeah, I definitely got... I, I read it, like, you know, it was after playing the game, but I definitely got it into some of the, the novels as well and just a little bit of backstory on some of the characters that you play as in the games. I think one of the things that I have been finding in my research on this and in and just in knowing the franchise uh, uh, to the extent that I do, the universe is so well, seemingly so well plotted. For something that has a rich history that crosses hundreds of years, there's very little confusion or retconning or it, it all seems very linearly plotted out in a way that's hard to wrap your head around considering how many voices are in the room when these things are coming are, are, are determined how many creative forces are involved and yet the franchise seems to have specific moments that happen at times characters are consistent from book to book for the most part I, am I am I out of line saying that, or am I out of touch? No, it's, saying that? it's very appropriate. It's it's a, it's a fun little. It's it's in the perfect temperate zone between being popular enough that lots of people want to write about it, but no, not so popular that everyone's racing to cash in on it. Right? You license out the Star Wars license, everybody wants some of that pie, and for a long time they were writing whatever they wanted, and none of it lined up. This was a more insular product. I mean, you mentioned before, it's bigger than we thought. It's bigger than just the three of us. But you ask around, not a lot of people know Battletech. Now, one of the things, again, I found in my research, as much as you say not a lot of people know about Battletech, but at one point in the 90s, there were these Battletech centers where they had pods that you could sit in that were Battletech simulators and fight against other people in similar pods. And I think at one point they even connected around the country. And there were there were centers around uh, North America for this and in Japan. So at some point it had to be big enough to support making all of these specialized pods. And I, how did we not know about that? Uh, well, I mean, for starters, because we were nine. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> nine. That, 
that helped. And and again, big is is relative, right? I mean, like remember Star Trek was a nerdy thing that cool people didn't know much about until like what the last fifteen years. Well, that's not true because there were entire Star Trek conventions for years, even when the show was long off the air and thought dead. All right. Well, but I mean, a, a question of perspective. Like, I mean, what, seven billion people on the planet, how many of them have been to a Star Trek con? Right? Like, you that's... can have enough of a fan base to, to buy your books and your video games, but, you know, if you bump into somebody in the Longos shopping for groceries, that person might not necessarily have a House Merrick tattoo, you know? <laughs> True, but but even with your Star Trek analogy, there haven't been, as far as I know, many Star Trek-specific arcade experiences, like whole stores or, or facilities devoted just to Star Trek and, and people pretending to be those characters. I, I do think there's something very impressive about that. Like, I can't get over it. And Oh, dude, and I am not knocking it. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm wearing a piece of Battletech-themed jewelry right now. Like, you don't have to tell me. <laughs> it was a wedding gift. <laughs> yeah, but yeah. Your, your well. love of this franchise is not uh, not something that is well hidden, and mm. nor should it be. So, yeah. so tell. I mean, how much of the board game have you played, Jess? And and I know I played it with you once at the, or we tried to play it once at your cottage. Steve, have you ever tried the board game? Uh, I believe I have. Um, but or at least one sort of rendition of it, I guess, because there's, you know, you can play like the whatever the, the 24 hour version of it or like the smaller the, version of it, uh, you know, probably with sort of like the BattleTech, uh, the little next box or whatever that they give you with the with the small uh, maps where you can sort of create your own game. So I did get into it a little bit. I think that was also mostly through Jesse. Uh, but, probably. You know, that was probably enjoyable. that City Tech box I had bought back yeah. in the day. Yeah, yeah I think I still have that floating around somewhere. It's there was fun. also the, the Hero Clicks version that came out with the Dark Ages, right? Yeah, much, much later. Yeah, that was yeah. later, though, right? Yeah. Yeah, the Clicks thing didn't hang around. No, it's a funny story. It's I, I didn't like the tabletop game very much, and I still don't. Um, the base game of Battletech really revolves around sort of one on one mech battles. And the universe is so much more open than that. Like, everybody wants to play. I think the smallest military unit most of the time is four of these big robots. Playing mm-hmm. a four-on-four game in this in this in the tabletop, like, one round, so each mech takes one turn, takes about an hour. Hmm. It's very yeah. slow. My memories of playing the tabletop Battletech game are you roll two six-sided dice, and then you read charts and tables for, like, 40 minutes. Because the way the game is structured is that you roll these dice and then you check, like, okay, so I rolled a three. So that means for movement, this happens. And for heat, this happens. And for- yeah, because I guess it's just, like, where, like, you, you sort of chart each component that's hit, right, on the enemy map. It just, it's like, just a very slow game. Now, yeah. for there, if, if anyone's interested in trying it, there's been a recent re-release of the game. There's been sort of a renaissance. Um, you can now buy a box... There's Battletech, a game of armored combat, and the Battletech Beginner's Box, both re-released last year, I think, that clean up the rules a bit. There's also a variation on the rules called Alpha Strike, which skims it down and makes it more palatable, and I never tried that one. Maybe that was the key. But no, the board games I never got into. I will say, even from the the 
video games, one of the, another thing that, at least in my mind, sets it apart from most other video game franchises and, and board game franchises is how technical it is. There's so much detail put into what kind of weapons you can apply to this and managing heat and even going beyond that into the lore, the people who manufacture the, the engines have a name. There's there's stories about them, and there's you know about the positives and negatives of the different manufacturers of types of weapons. It's not just missiles. It's oh, this brand of missile is really good, and these guys don't make the missiles as well. It's it's so detailed, and on that specific a level, I don't feel like I'm I, I see that in a lot of other franchises. Well, I mean, that's not for everybody, right? Oh, you know, like, God, no. <laughs> no like, it's, impressive. it's impressive that it's there and it's that consistent. You know, yeah. the, the rules of how phasers or photon torpedoes work change on an episode-to-episode basis. But in this, the missiles work one way, and that's how they work. Yeah, Lublin Ballistics makes a very specific kind of autocannon. It doesn't right. overlap with the kind of autocannon that Pontiac makes. Fun fact, for those of you who just quirked an eyebrow, <laughs> a lot of the manufacturers take, like, General Motors is apparently still around in the 31st century. Wow. They make the Blackjack battle mech. Um, yeah, Pontiac makes a heavy autocannon. It's, it's weird how they get away with it. I imagine if the franchise was bigger, they wouldn't. Does Pontiac um, even still exist now? Yeah, I was going to say, I didn't think they existed. <laughs> Maybe they magnificent still, comeback. Yeah, yeah in a very different way. The 31st century. So, Jeez. so what, so, yeah, I think me. that's, I think that's time to, where we really got to start to do our deep dive. That's, we got to get into Battletech. I mean, the way we had come up with the concept for this episode was the reasons Battletech is the best sci-fi franchise you've never heard of. Um, which is a clever way that Graham put it. I think we got to talk about a little bit about what it is. So, uh, buckle up. <laughs> I will try to make this quick and palatable. So the world of Battletech is a parallel to sort of the Dark Ages in our history after the fall of Rome. Um, In the fiction, paralleling the fall of Rome, there was like the galaxy was once united and everyone was happy under the Star League, which is their federation, essentially. Uh, It doesn't work out because peace isn't interesting for storytelling. The Star League collapses and this futuristic society of spaceships and giant robots basically beat themselves into submission. And so after hundreds of years of war, the galaxy is this scarred battlefield and this these level these giant robots and spaceships that can travel faster than light, these are all sort of prized lost technologies. Like people know how to put together like you put put tab A into slot B, it makes a fusion reactor, but no one's left who can tell you why, how a fusion reactor happens. So you have this dark timeline where people are barely eking out a survival, doing what they can to keep these ancient hundred-year-old super-fighting robots working. Uh, but they all still want to fight and kill each other. The setting for most of Battletech takes place in civilized space in an area called the Inner Sphere. It's divided up into five successor states. We'll get into more details on that uh, if we need to touch on them. Uh, but each one is divided up by sort of their culture. There's the, you know, there's an ancient Greek, but with giant robots culture. There's the feudal Japan, but with giant robots culture, each ruled by a great house. 
So your factions in this sort of parallel your factions like in Game of Thrones, the way you had the Starks up in Winterfell. In this one, you have House Curita. They, they run the Draconis Combine. Each, each faction has all the cool stuff about them that allow for people to generate stories within their different cultures. And this is where the role-playing comes in, because they've set up the culture. So this culture is a lot like feudal Japan. So if you're ethnically Japanese, you're on the, the, top, like the minority ruling class. But maybe you're not that. I mean, in the lore, the Draconis Combine, the ethnic Japanese sort of lorded over the Azami, who are basically space Muslims, and the people from Rasselhag, who are the space Swedes. These five states are constantly digging at each other, and there's alliances and treaties, and the enemy of my enemy is my friend, until they're not, and all of it eventually comes down to fights between these battle mechs piloted by these mech warriors, these elite military, almost like knights, I guess. I mean, literally almost knights from if you're looking at the Federated Sons, but samurai from the Draconis Combine, however your nation does it who pilot their cool robots into battle and do the best they can to keep them working long enough to shoot lasers and missiles and particle cannons at the other guy, only to find out the whole time they were getting played by the treacherous Duke of whatever, and there's, and there's a betrayal and a swing, and now you're playing for the other side, etc. That is the, the rough takeaway of what we're doing in this world. And... At nine or ten, like as a, I mean, I don't mean to generalize, but as a nine or ten year old boy, that was the coolest thing in the world. So the lore sets up these five factions, essentially not exactly perfectly balanced, but always on that razor's edge of trying to defeat your opponents without making yourselves too vulnerable. And some of it, there are despotic tyrants, there are cunning and clever leaders, there are sneaky people with mysterious plans, there are all the, hmm, all the cliches that come with certain cultures. If you have a culture that's feudal Japan, you have to have ninjas. So, of yeah, course, there's a huge honor component to what they do. Oh, yeah, they all, all those me their mech warriors follow a code of Bushido. They're, they're really big into single combat and all that jazz. Um, the other side of it, there's the, like the, the Lyran Commonwealth are the, like the ancient Greece side, and they're, they're, they're ruled by essentially a corrupt Senate that's mostly in it for the money. I wouldn't know anything about that. That doesn't sound familiar at all. <laughs> yeah, I know. We don't have anything like that in modern day. <laughs> um, and it just sets up all these cool opportunities for you to do cool stuff. And the stories in Battletech follow the years... Um, of these states just constantly trying to one-up one another. And like you mentioned, Graham, there are hundreds of years of history. The original setting for the game starts in the year 3025, where it's been about 300 years since the fall of the Star League. Um, and then history for books and settings goes back hundreds of years to the founding of the Star League in like the 2700s, I think, and even earlier just for like to have that history on hand. And it goes far into the future to almost 3200, hmm. which is kind of a Star Wars-y thing where like you can have, you know, like you can be this person is the descendant of this person who's the descendant of this person, but it also means that you can set characters and events to happen that are far away enough that they don't really influence each other. So that's where it mostly got into, and I feel like of the three of us, I'm the only one who really knows anything about it. 
because in a way that's you definitely not know the most. <laughs> well, yeah. me, well, you guys hit me. Like, where, we, like, what have you got on the inner sphere? Uh, well, I mean, I know sort of like the bare bones, which is yeah, like the five great houses, and I, I think you hinted at a sixth one. Don't recall that, but uh, yeah, and Blake, right? Yeah, no, they're not a house at all. Oh, this okay, is um, okay. those the for a for a brief twenty years in this period of history. Uh, up the I mentioned that the, the those poor Swedish folks were being dominated by the Draconis Combine. They get their own nation in the thirty early thirty thirties. I want to say thirty thirty three or thirty thirty four, and then the next big setting for BattleTech is the Clan Invasion, and they're right in the path of that. We'll get to the clans in just a second. Wow. Yeah, no, I I mean, yeah, beyond that, it's it's mostly sort of the, you know, the return of the clans, which I'll, I'll let you uh, delve into that without giving anything away. I I think I, I mean, one of the things that in, in my head is it feels like there's all these, these, there are books and information about all the different groups, but the main characters tend to be the Federated Sons, right? Or am I, is that just a biased view of it based on the books I've read? I mean, that's a biased view of it. I mean, that's probably coming out of the Warrior Trilogy by Michael A. Stackpole, um, which is one of the earlier things, but it's the second main trilogy of paperbacks that come out of this. Like the inception of the Battletech paperbacks are the Grey Death Legion novels. They follow a mercenary unit. Uh, that are mostly fighting in Merrick and Curita space. And their their big climactic battle is in the Free Worlds League with House Merrick and a little bit of Comstar involvement. I mean, that, that just to give you a, a sense of the world, like you, we've been talking about the names of nation states, or not even nation states, but the, the names of these different sectors of space, these different groups like Federated Sons. And then you seamlessly slip into the names of the ruling houses of those, and they're kind of interchangeable, but... I think it speaks to the depth of it that you can talk about it like it's a real there's a there's a reality to it. And and I'll get a bit more into that something that occurred to me in that regard when it comes to the clans, but that is such a rich detailed world and I don't know that there's I can't think of something else that compares to it on that level of detail. I mean, I will say it and it's going to sound pretentious, but honestly, I compare it to the world building that Tolkien did. Hmm. The the Lord and of the Rings. Had, he only had four books. Ah, he had a lot of unfinished <laughs> stuff. It's, you can right, I, unfinished stuff doesn't count. Yeah, Christopher Tolkien spent a lot of his life building some of that out. But no, the Lord of the Rings is set in a larger world and refers to events that he hadn't released to the public yet. Right when Frodo holds up Galadriel's vial, and he says um, it's Aya Erendil Elenian Ankalima, he's referring to the light of Erendil, which is the elves' interpretation of the northern of the North Star of Polaris, which refers to a myth of Erendil the Mount Mariner from the Silmarillion, and about how he wears a Silmaril on. Like it's a whole like right. It's all of that is established. That's mm-hmm. part of what makes that universe work so well. I mean, like, Harry Potter is great, but it clearly only exists in those seven books, right? It starts and ends. Don't, don't bring the Potter fans against us, JB. <laughs> Pick something else. I can't handle I, that. <laughs> I'm just saying that it has a lot of room to grow. 
Whereas stuff like Lord of the Rings, like there's 10,000 years of history, fairly well documented. And it gives the world a sense of realism because there's a sense of continuity. Even if you don't see the big picture, all the pieces just fit comfortably. And Battletech has had that from the start in a way that, that Star Wars has never had, in a way that Star Trek has barely had. Just because they weren't that kind of fiction, it doesn't make them worse, but they're more about the individual episodes, where Battletech is more about this huge spanning world. So, I think, uh, take us into the clans, just so that, uh, you know, Steve and I probably have more to say about uh, about that. Yeah, that's, than, that's why yeah. I wanted to get the inner sphere out of the way quickly. <laughs> so the inner sphere is the, is the setting for most of it, and they established those states as the players. Um, I mentioned that parallel to the fall of Rome. If you know your history, you know that they were fighting among themselves for a while, but then the Huns came. So to parallel that, there has to be an outside invading force. And what they do in the fiction is the Star League, the Federation, the Great Alliance of Everybody. When it collapses, there's this great Star League general, Alexander Kerensky. And he says, no, you know what? As this big international, like, allied navy, we're not going to take sides in the civil war that's coming up. We're just going to leave. And he pulls hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of people out on the exodus. Like, they load up on their warships and they leave the inner sphere to its 300 years of civil war. They fly away for about a year and settle, and and we find out much later in the franchise, it turns out when you have an entire civilization descended from an army... Um, it doesn't turn out great. So hundreds of years later, with the inner sphere at their throats, suddenly the clans invade, the descendants of the original Star League Defense Force, who have become this weird 90s militocracy. They're tribal, in a way. I mean, they're, they're all named after, like, their, their clans are all named after different animals, these bestial totems. They're, they live in a caste system with the warriors at the top and the laborers at the bottom. And they are just intensely guided by rituals and just this worship of battle and war That in a way that makes it super cool to kids who don't really know what war is. But <laughs> you see what I'm getting at? Like it, yeah. It's, <laughs> you also, and, I think the, the whole, didn't they have the whole like eugenics program as well where they're, you know, oh, they're yeah. sort of bred for war. They, oh, yeah. They're, versus they, the inner sphere where they're... The warrior cats specifically, they don't have kids the old-fashioned way. They're all sterile. They they grow their warriors in tubes, and they use the best genes to make the toughest, biggest dudes. Their infantry in particular, the elemental soldiers, are like two and a half meters tall. Right? They're you know, the size of a football field. It's uh, like that kind of thing. They're, so they're not even necessarily the bad guys. As we get to know the clans, each clan is a little bit different and has their own thing going on, and some are better than others, but there are these warlike tribes, and most importantly in terms of the setting, or as the Inner Sphere beat the hell out of themselves for 300 years and are now living on you know, duct tape and barbed wire, the clans didn't. So their mechs kick ass, <laughs> and their stuff kicks ass, and Fun side note, that was, like, nobody liked that in the tabletop game, because you suddenly, you suddenly introduced an incredibly unbalanced faction, and the idea was that they were balanced because of their, their rituals, right? Like, Zelbrigan is the clan ritual Mm -hmm. where you never, like, you never gang up on an enemy. You always try to fight one-on-one, and the bidding system 
is where the clans say, like, well, you don't, like, if you have, like, ten guys and the other person only has a knife, like, that's not fair. That's not honorable. So you only send one guy because you want it to be an even fight so you can prove that you're going to be the, like, it makes, it makes for really cool reading, not so much fun for gameplay. But that, I think, captured our imagination when we were kids. And with Mech Warrior 2 taking place entirely within the clans, with the refusal war between clans Wolf and Jade Falcon, I think that's, I mean, that's more your guy's speed, right? Like, that's when the three of us all really got into it, but that was definitely your thing. Yeah, so I just want to ask a quick thing before we delve too deeply into that. How long was it in the Battletech in the gaming world that Battletech existed without any clans? Like, how how long had people been playing it before the clans were introduced? Not long, only a few years. The clans were always part of the plan. Oh, okay. Uh, it's, it's a disruptive force, but they're, like, that was always the idea. So if you go back to the beginning, the, the idea of Kerensky and his people flying off into deep space had always been there? Yes, it was always there. Okay. It, it, it was the Huns coming to sack Rome. Right. Uh, they, they knew there was going to be an outside force. So they came pretty early on. It wasn't a huge, like, there wasn't, it, it would be, like, nowadays, if you introduced, like, evil aliens, I mean, that would be a weird way to do it, but if you introduced evil aliens in Star Wars, it would be, like, a huge big deal, right? That's that's what sort of happened with the Yuzhen Vong in those books, yeah. if you ever got there. Not so good. <laughs> and this one, like, they laid the groundwork pretty early. And you know we didn't talk, we haven't talked about them yet. Again, this world is so big. I'm going to be saying that all the time in this podcast. But like we haven't even talked about Wolf's dragoons, who are a big mercenary unit who started off pretty early in BattleTech franchise, but who short, short, short version were basically advanced recon agents for the clans. Okay, so so Steve, why don't you tell me what you remember about MechWarrior Two? Uh, MechWarrior Two, I mean. You know, obviously can't go wrong with the, the giant war machines and lasers and whatnot. Uh, I, I did. I was aware that uh, you were playing as as the clans, um, which obviously for me was like you know there's obviously a lot of appeal in playing as sort of the more powerful faction when you're ten years old. <laughs> uh, and I don't know. It was just such a cool. Uh, you know, like I'd never played a game quite like it because it's kind of you know sort of like a simulator a little bit and at that time like there was nothing really like it and it was just just this incredible sense of of power you get you know sort of piloting one of these things yeah the empowerment for sure yeah and it was just just of just like nothing i'd ever seen or played at the time and then it's sort of from there it sort of grew into you know this really this interest in this world and the the universe and, and that sort of is what took off for me. One of the things that I think uh, was a style at the time was that there were two different sides and you could play a story mode as one side and a story mode as the other side. So the two sides were Clan Wolf and Clan Jade Falcon. Which side do you remember feeling more attached to? But That's a question for both of you, but why don't you start, John? Uh, definitely Clan Wolf. Uh, although it's kind of interesting because I... I prefer piloting the, uh, uh, the the Thor or the Summoner, I guess, uh, which is, I think... <laughs> An iconic Jade Falcon. Yeah, Jade Falcon <laughs> mech, yeah. But uh, Clan Wolf, for sure, I think. Because I think they, they got a lot of sort of... It was a lot of the books, I think, were written from their perspective as well, right? In terms of, like, the histories and the battles that were fought. It was, it was 
their story was a lot more interesting, I think, and a lot more, they were positioned a lot more uh, to be sort of the, you know, the, 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 the side you root for, kind of. Yeah, they were sort of the more like protagonists. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think it, it helps, you know, as memory serves, they were on the left side of the screen when you could when you chose which one you were going to play as. And so <laughs> right. that's the one I kind of played first, and I got used to Jade Falcon being the villains. That's how yeah. I've rationalized it in my head, but I've always definitely felt more for Clan Wolf than Jade Falcon. And you know what? It's also worth considering, I was thinking about this, the way that game gives you the choice is from the title screen, like, you click on the emblem of the clan you want to play, and then it plays a little video where a very dramatic person explains to you what the clan is about. And the Clan Jade Falcon narrator is a woman. And I think as a nine-year-old boy, <laughs> you know, in wow. the early 90s, I feel like that probably affected my decision a little. And obviously, I got over it. Like there are some, in, like, yeah. there are some incredible Jade Falcon characters, and, and a lot of them actually are women, um, which is probably why they made that choice. But at, you know, as a kid, you know, girls are icky. Like that was still the phase I was at. <laughs> it's it's weird because you sort of, you know, rewatching that video, I found like I I was still sort of more aligned with Clan Wolf just because of it, it seems so more like much more accessible and i think they they seem a little bit more i don't know like they, they, yeah like the the video in the video when you watch the jade falcon intro it's more like cold and like mechanical and you don't feel, feel any like, sort of affiliation to them yeah they feel like romulans <laughs> yeah they exactly kinda, they kind of do and yeah they're they're more aggressive they're more antagonistic the like the the falcons are the crusaders right they're here to to kick ass and chew bubblegum Whereas the wolves are the protectors, right? They're the wardens, and so you, you, it feels more heroic being with Clan Wolf. And but you're right, John. Like the the like the books dealing with the clan invasion, the wolves are definitely portrayed as the the good guys of the clans, uh, and that comes out in that game as well. And then another thing that uh, these was the standard of video games at the time. There was a, an expansion pack, what we would now call DLC, and that introduced Clan Ghost Bear. And uh, I, I remember really being impressed by that whole expansion pack at the time. But in watching that opening cutscene that you sent around a few days ago, wow, it, it was it looked so much worse than I remember. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> this Weird, it, blocky we, I, monster coming out of the water, coming out of the ice. They put the a lot of effort into those cutscenes. Yeah, it was the Kodiak. He jumps the the jaguar vulture. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, the the Kodiak being one of the most hilariously '80s mech designs that they have, the totem mech for Clan Ghost Bear, which is this big robot grizzly bear with long claws on it. I remember when you could pl- you play it as it in Mech Warrior Four. Let mechs have me- mechs in this universe have things called jump jets, which are basically jetpacks on their legs, so they can jump a little. The Kodiak, when you use the jump jet, it roars like a bear. They never go into why; <laughs> it just does. The better question is, why not? Exactly. <laughs> wow, Ghost Bear's Legacy was great, man. It was a great expansion pack. It had a bunch of new mechs, a bunch of new missions, yeah. a new soundtrack. It came out the same year as Mech Warrior Two. Also, like they just kept programming back in those days. Yeah, that feels uh, sort of unusual for that time. 
Yeah, I, I guess it was you know there, there wasn't that much extra to do back then. Right. I mean that game, especially before the Titanium one, it was all flat textures and you know polygonal graphics. Like they didn't have to pay a, a whole horde of artists to do glitter effects. You know? And then after that came MechWarrior Two Mercenaries, and for whatever reason, that was the game. I, I played that game endlessly. I played it over and over and over again, and I think it was because there was an illusion of choice in it, in, in the missions that you took. Yeah, tell, tell us more about that. I remember you playing that one a ton. Like, I think John and I were more into the clan stuff. Mercenaries was definitely the inner sphere perspective, and then the clan invasion happens towards the end. But what about that grabbed you so much more than the other two? Uh, well, I... I think, I mean, is that the first game where salvage becomes a thing? Uh, in the, I mean, of the mech, of that franchise, that franchise, yeah, the first Mech Warrior 2 game where you need to salvage stuff. So that was an interesting concept to me, and there was an element of randomness in it. So to explain, uh, salvage is you, you go through the mission, you fight all these mechs, and you blow them up. And at the end of the mission, you would get it would tell you like a text box would come up and it tell you what parts of these other mechs you destroyed, you got to keep. And then you could use those, you could sell them to get other parts or you could use them to improve your own mechs. And there was certain things that you were always going to salvage because they were important to the plot. But other than that, it sort of depended on how you destroyed the mech. You know, if you took a leg out, you're more likely to get more of the mech. If you blow up their, their reactor and the whole thing explodes, you're probably not going to get much from it. And the idea of that, the idea of mm. your, the, the randomness of it, I guess, and the, the, how every time you play it, it's going to be a little different was so unique to me and so new. And then beyond that, you would get mission screens. And because you're a mercenary, you got to pick the missions that would give you the most money. And the things that gave you the most money were always the ones that progressed the story. But there were also always these little side missions. And it felt like I had more control over how the story went than you did in most games at that point. Usually it was fairly linear. Here's your mission. Here's your cutscene. Here's your mission. Here's your cutscene. It, this, it felt like I controlled the story more. Does that make sense? Yeah. So I, yeah, I, I don't recall playing that one too much, to be honest. I, I don't know. I, I feel oh, like you I, will if you Google it up. That. Yeah. Uh, I, my, my recollection of Mercs is from MechWarrior 4, of course. The yeah, later much later. Games, yeah. We'll, uh, we'll circle back to that. I, it's just another interesting part of the universe how important mercenaries are to it. You know, you've got these big royal houses that everyone is part of and expresses loyalty to, but even within that, there are groups that just sell themselves to the highest bidder. And they are as important to the story. They're not uh, an afterthought. They all have really detailed histories to them, and it's an honor to be part of one of these mercenary groups. Another thing that I think sets it apart from a lot of other fiction... It's a really cool breakdown of the distinction between the Inner Sphere factions and the clans factions, too, right? Like, salvage never matters to the clans because they still have a civilization and an industrial base. In the Inner Sphere, you gotta take what you can get. And so, like, mercenary or royal house, like, if you can defeat an enemy mech just by, like, knocking out a leg and then pull the whole thing back to your place and trim it back up and you got a brand new robot, like, that might be the only way to get it. 
And that especially comes in handy when you're an Intersphere player facing the clans. Right. Because that happened at the end of Mech 2 Mercenaries also, which perfectly lore-appropriate, but that was a bit of a difficulty spike. Because the clans, <laughs> they shoot faster, they, they shoot cooler, they shoot from further away, and they hit more accurately. And you want that equipment. You want to, like, just getting a couple of clan lasers mm. is a huge victory. On the off chance you salvage an entire clan Omni-Mech, like, oh boy, it was the best day of your life. ERPPCs. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Totally unbalanced, by yeah. the way. <laughs> it's interesting, John, you were saying that you don't remember playing Mercenaries very much. I don't have many memories of playing Ghost Bear, so maybe we just ended up on opposite ends of the yeah. expansion packs. I think that may have been towards where I... Because I... I didn't get into MechWarrior 3 either, either, so I feel like I, I may have dropped off for a little bit, and I know I watched a lot of MechWarrior 3 at Jesse's place. Uh, That's not true. I, like, <laughs> we rotated off. Well, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but I just I just don't remember playing that one, and I think it's, a lot of it had to do with just not having like a machine that could run it at the time. Mm. You know, being... <laughs> So I, I would uh, a lot of my fond memories of that game were from from watching you play. My Which was strongest, cool. yeah, yeah. My strongest memory of MechWarrior Three was going to a store that it was like a Chapters Remaindered store. So Chapters is a huge or was a huge bookstore franchise, and it was a place where they were selling damaged books at steep discounts. And for some reason, they had a box of MechWarrior 3 there, deeply discounted. And I thought, this is amazing. And I got my mom to buy it for me. And on the car on the way home, I opened it up, and there was no CD inside. Oh. And we took it back, and I was like, this, this is fine. This is fine. We'll just replace it with another one. This is fine. And they said, here's your money back. And that oh. was that. <laughs> Sucks. Yeah. So I hate that game. Well, let me let me posit another alternative for you. MechWarrior 3 came out in 1999, which was... Uh, well, really, when you break it down to the months, it's less than a year after Mech Commander came out. Ah. Now, Mech Commander, I think, occupied a lot of... John, I know your time, but I think all yeah. three of us. as Mech Commander being a, the real-time strategy games. Rather than sitting you know, in the simulated cockpit of one of these things, you were commanding small armies of them. Yeah, so just for perspective for our non-gamer listeners, the MechWarrior 2 games, it was a first-person perspective. It was like you were sitting in the cockpit of the mech. Mech Commander took the camera above the playing field, and you would tell the various mechs where to go. It was a game like Warcraft or Command & Conquer, if you're familiar with those. And in a way, like it was almost a puzzle game, right? Because they, they would put you up against these impossible odds. But there was always like a specific route, and if you used certain equipment, and you know, like a big deal in that game was bases that were defended by turrets. But you try to find a gap in the turret network and get a mech with jump jets to jump like over the walls of the base and capture the turret control center, mm -hmm. right? And then the turrets would now be on your side, and then they'd be shooting the bad guys while you move the rest of your guys in. It was sort of a plan things out and then see how it goes and like plan a strategy and execute it kind of like a rainbow six sort of thing almost mm. uh, as opposed to mech, the mech warrior first person games which are more you know based around your reflexes and how smart you could build your mechs uh, we played the heck out of mech commander yeah. it was an interesting departure from those like those previous games like 
you know, they, they totally took it in a different direction, and it, it worked well, out. Well, I mean, the earliest MechWarrior video games were more, like, strategy top-down stuff. Like, the Battletech game in 1988 for, like, PC and Amiga. Uh, so, but you know, pretty much before our time was was what yeah. was, was was a top-down game. Like the original uh, MechWarrior game. You mean, like, MechWarrior? Yeah. yeah, like 3050 or whatever. Guess, right? Yeah, it was that uh, slightly different. That was a Super Nintendo Genesis oh, one. Okay. That, but <laughs> anyway, yeah, the, the details are, are boring. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but yeah, they go back and forth like, because of the nature. I mean, remember the original tabletop game of this is like, it, yeah, it revolves around one mech versus one mech, but it's more fun to have more mechs. Like you're controlling small groups, and it's. I don't know. It, if, if you, when you say first-person shooter, you think of stuff like Counter-Strike or Halo, where it's about holding the crosshair over a target and pulling the trigger before they do it to you. A mech battle is more complicated than that. It's slower, and it has a lot of considerations to it. I mean, half of it takes place before you're even in the mech, because chances are you're customizing it beforehand. And you're balancing out how much firepower does it have versus how much armor does it have, how much damage can it take. Um, how many energy weapons are you putting on it that's going to build up heat? If you build up too much heat, your mech's going to overheat and shut down. Uh, so instead, maybe you'll go for more like guns and cannons and missiles that use less heat but need ammunition. And what happens if you run out of ammunition? Or where are you going to put the ammunition? If you put the ammunition you know, in the, the body of the mech and you happen to take a stray round and all your ammunition cooks off and explodes, that's no good. So maybe you put the... like. That and all happens before you get into the game, and then you need to manage it, right? It's not about the reflexes so much as it's about the planning. Going back to the ammo for a second, in a lot of first-person shooters, you're just constantly picking up ammo as you play. In this game, once you're out of ammo for a weapon, that weapon is useless. It's dead weight. That, I, that's a fascinating thing to, to think about, too, when you're planning out your, your mech. There's no chance to reload. And that customization makes it so infinitely replayable. And Mech Commander took that to another level because not only were you customizing mechs, you know, when you were playing Mech Warrior, you would customize your own mech. Here you're customizing multiple mechs and you get pilots with specific skills and personalities and you connect them to different mechs. Right. And, the, and what you do with them trains them up. Like maybe you have a guy who's usually in your scout mech, so he's jumping around. And so his like jump jet ability and his sensors ability get stronger, but he's not doing a lot of shooting. So he can't hit targets as well as your other. You know, maybe you've got your badass and your assault mech. Like, you know, she's got like she's got gunnery all the way maxed out. and She's pretty good at piloting, but don't ask her to ford a river. <laughs> Yeah, I did. I did also like the the aspect of like managing, you know, sort of the, the management outside of uh, a mission and outside of the battle is is being able to sort of, you know, decide. Okay, you have so many sea bills and you have to do repairs on on certain mechs, or you maybe you are looking to to build your roster and and add another mech to you know to to your squad. Sort of, you have to kind of think of those things as well outside of the missions. Uh, and, and I think for me, like Mech Commander was where the salvage component really came into play. And I really enjoyed like looking forward to trying to get that, you know, the components to build that next mech. Right. The Mad Cat. Or like salvage the Mad right? Cat. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That was like a and juicy little, uh, <laughs> like a steak that was just, just 
hanging there and you could never quite reach it. <laughs> and I remember one of the neat things about that game is you could tell your pilots to target specific parts of enemy mechs. So you'd want to try and target the cockpit. And yeah. it sounds terrible now, but the idea of just <laughs> killing the pilot so you could get the whole mech and it would be undamaged was... Listen, was that, is a, that is a thing in this franchise. The, like, the, the phrase is kill the meat, not the metal. <laughs> It's uh, yeah, it's kind of grim, but yeah, it's you know, headshots aren't easy, but it's no, that's inner sphere all the way. Remember, clans don't care about salvage, they'll just make more. Um, Oh, true, which which, funny, I mean, logistics actually turned out to be a huge problem for them during the clan invasion, but (laughs) um, but yeah, no, the idea that you know, if you kill it with a headshot, all you gotta do is hose out the cockpit, rebuild it, stick a new computer in there, and you're good. That comes up in the fiction a lot. Yeah. I think I remember, like, on my third or fourth playthrough of Mech Commander, I managed to salvage that Mad Cat fully intact. And it was just, like, a, a just a total fluke shot, uh, you know, to the cockpit. And I don't know how. It, it was. I think it was, like, a PPC hit. And it actually, like, curved the PPC straight into the cockpit of the Mech. And I, it's something, like, I, I'm pretty sure it was, like, a game-breaking... <laughs> element that was yeah. never supposed to happen. Man, you're really making me want to buy that game again. <laughs> oh, yeah, that third mission, I mean, like, the mission is to recover, it's a, a raven, a scout mech, and escort it out of the, yeah. the combat area, but whenever I got to that mission, I, my squad was designed to go in and try and cripple that mad cat so I could recover yeah. it. The, I mean, the mad, cat, point, the mad the... cat or the timber wolf being one of the it's 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 one of the like, the icon mechs of the BattleTech franchise. It shows up on the cover art a lot. It, it's one of the coolest mechs. That's um, that's another thing that I think speaks to the depth of the lore. The fact that when the clans invaded, they the Inner Sphere characters, the perspective characters, didn't know what those mechs are were, so they named them something. And then later on, you find out the clans had a completely different name for it. That's mind boggling. It's like if the X Wing, the Rebels called it the X-Wing, and the Imperials called it the Bijou Phillips jet or something. I don't know. Well, I mean, know. it's it's that. realistic in a way, right? It's like so during realistic. The, but like during the Cold War, like, the, the Americans don't use, like, they didn't use Russian names for the Russian jets. They had reporting names for it. It's so realistic, mm-hmm. but it's a, a detail that I could imagine being off-putting to an audience, and so creators not doing it just to simplify things. But it's so realistic. I love it. I do and honestly wish they hadn't. <laughs> I, I do hate that for that whole, like that, that so many mechs have two names. It's extremely frustrating. Yeah. It's fascinating I, though. It's fascinating. And it's a cool it's, bit it's of world building, but it makes it difficult to, to refer to them. Yeah. To speak about them because you, you don't know which one you're, which one you're referring to. But I, I do. That find being that. said, it's a handy litmus test to figure out like, what kind of Battletech fan you're talking to if they use the clan name or the Inner Sphere name. You figure out if it's a clan guy or an Inner Sphere guy, figure out who you're dealing with, you know? <laughs> okay, so there's two... We're, we're rapidly running out of time, but there's two big things I want to talk about before we wrap up. One is we've talked about Mech Commander. After that came MechWarrior 4, and that had a bunch of expansion packs and a, a fairly long life. There was also Mech Commander and then Mech Assault on the Xbox. And then... The franchise kind of disappeared for a while. Do you want to talk to that for a bit, Jess? I mean, the the idea like Mech Warrior went away because sim games are hard to market. 
And this goes back to what John was talking about, and I, I touched on it too, where it's like there are a lot of functions to manage in a battle mech, and it's not an action-packed adventure. It's like you could sit in there for a while managing your heat curve and like checking your satellite view and reassigning the, the fire control groups for your weapons. Like it's not Counter-Strike, right? Counter-Strike is very accessible because the point of the game is to pick up a machine gun and shoot all the other dudes. Yeah, it's not a, it's not a Twitch shooter. <laughs> yeah, so it didn't sell well. And the fact of the matter is, I mean, in, compared to other franchises, like nothing about it has ever sold that well. It's fine, but it's not considered like an A plus high quality thing. Um, so, like Mech Warrior Four, especially like the initial one, Mech Warrior Four Vengeance was two thousand. It did well, and it had a couple of expansions up to two thousand and two that didn't really do very well. And then it just, no one ever could figure out how to get it back, back to where it was, and probably until about 2013 with MechWarrior Online. And even then, it, eh, it kind of mixed results. It's, hmm. it's one of those, it's very pay to win. It's an yeah. online only player versus player game where you can very slowly work up the in game currency C bills to buy better mechs. Or for nineteen ninety nine, you can get the CN nine Centurion pack. You know, and didn't it kind of not live up to what it was? They promised it would be. Eh, no. I mean, eventually they got some stuff going, but the Kickstarter promised that it would have more of a world building element to it. Uh, that you know, you'd be in territories in the inner sphere, and it, it would feel more like in the franchise. Really, when it came out, it was just Battle Mech Deathmatch. It was. I mean, yeah, it was, a, it was fine. It ticked all the boxes to be a game, but the whole lore element, like we've been talking for an hour about how fascinating the lore was, and that never made it in there. Yeah, I think that was the problem, is that they focused on sort of the the, the battle text, really, but without any of the substance behind them. It was all yeah. just, you know, just, just shooting lasers and, and robots without really understanding why or the purpose behind them. So that kind of took away from... Yeah, the... compare that to like Mech Warrior Four, like especially the Mech Warrior Four Mercenaries, which ends in the the, it, it, the plot ends in the Fedcom Civil War, which was a huge event in the books. And depending what side you take, you participate in battles that happen off camera in the books. And it's not even like that, like, like, oh, this is what happened in the book, so you're here. But there's holes in the book where like, so this got handled somehow. And when you play the game, you see how it got handled because you're doing it. Hmm. So yeah. I, one of the things in, in my head that explained this absence, and I, I don't know if there's any truth to it, but Microsoft, I think, got the rights to the franchise and did Mech Assault on the Xbox. And the game was never going to work well on, on a console. Like MechWarrior does not translate to holding a, a controller that way, or at least it didn't at that time. Maybe now with more sophisticated controllers, it could. But I remember playing Mech Assault and being very underwhelmed by it compared to the previous games. And in my head anyway, I feel like I got the impression that Microsoft then buried it after it didn't sell the way they wanted it to. Do you know if there's any truth to that? I mean, not as much as you'd think, but I mean, that ties into like they were trying to adapt it to be more of a Twitch shooter, right? Hmm. Mech Assault was really fast paced. It was really quick. It all could have been done with four buttons and the two sticks. They tried to make it more marketable and it just ended up sort of being in a gray area between the two types of games. Okay. I mean, Mech Assault has its dedicated fan base. Like there are people who still emulate it and play it to this day. Um, 
just recently we were looking at somebody's trying to recreate it from the ground up in the Unity engine. If you Google this fan game called Wolves, uh, they're they're trying to recreate it, and it's it, it's got mm. what it's got, but nah. Um, the rights issues are also a thing. Like the BattleTech rights are incredibly complicated right now. For a while, it was like Microsoft had like the online, or Microsoft had like the, the digital gaming rights, and then Piranha Games had the online rights. And like companies that have owned BattleTech have folded and then rebranded themselves, then become other companies. It's it's been a bit of a mess trying to figure out who has what. So the, the renaissance with Battletech over the last couple of years, where they finally started to re-release games and tabletop stuff, is it's been a lot of work has gone into like, making that actually happen. So why don't you tell us a bit about that, the, the newest generation of it? What are those games like? When do they take place? And are they worth your time? Yeah, if you want to play Battletech right now, if you want to play tabletop, pick up a well don't it's quarantine so don't go if you have a hobby shop that has curbside pickup or are willing to ship you can look for battletech a game of armored combat or the battletech beginners box Um, the battletech clan invasion box is also supposed to be out sometime this year you'll get maps and dice and a couple of cool battle mech minis um, and a basic explanation of how the rules work so you can get the idea of how to play from there if you want to play the video games, uh, there are two that have come out in recent memory. Um, Hairbrain Schemes, uh, which is a company that was founded exclusively to do this, and one of the executive producers is the original guy who invented Battletech, this guy Jordan Wiseman. Uh, they released Battletech, that eponymously named, in 2018. You can find it on PC, on Steam, and probably on a variety of other sources by now. I think it's shown up in a few Humble Bundles. Battletech on PC is a turn-based strategy game that is heavily, heavily infused with the lore. It goes right back to the beginning of the franchise again in 3025 during the Succession Wars. We play as mercenaries struggling to make it out there with their tattered army of robots. And it tells a pretty cool story, and it's really artfully done, and that's great. If you're looking for more of the bang, bang, pew, pew, you want to pilot one of these mechs, MechWarrior 5 came out at the end of last year on the Epic Game Store, uh, and it will probably be out in the end of this year for Steam, if you, don't want, to, if you want to get it there. It's less good. Um, it's, it's a smaller title. It's, it, it, listen, it's not an awesome game, but it was developed by 11 guys. Like It was a small team who put this together. Um, there are some real flaws with it. It's got some real mixed reviews, but the actual, like, all the stuff aside, it's actually sitting in the mech and driving it around and shooting other mechs. The mech-to-mech combat is great. Those are your options if you want to check it out right now. Okay, so the last thing I want to do before we, we wrap this up... We yeah, have this might talk- take a while. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we have talked about the lore. We have talked about the games. One of the things that we haven't talked about in this whole podcast about Mech Warrior are the mechs. What are? Oh my gosh! Oh my gosh! <laughs> what What are some of your favorite mechs? I, I don't know if we have time for a top five, but how about you know your two favorite mechs in the franchise? Good God. I'm going to have to narrow my list down. Yeah, Graham, can we start with you while I like do my Sophie's Choice over here? <laughs> I'll, I'll go quickly. I, I mean, the Marauder was uh, a longtime favorite going back to the first game that I played in MechWarrior 2. And it, it's partly just because the cockpit when you're riding in it, you know, that, that was one of the cool things about the games. Depending what mech you were in, 
the world looked different. You would either be higher up or lower down, and the cockpit itself, what the windshield you were looking through, would look different based on the mech. And the Marauder happened to have a window that looked like a TIE fighter. And oh, like that. <laughs> <laughs> Just hit me. Is that the only reason? That's the only thing. Mech, but I remember loving that aspect of it, and then you saying. Yeah, but all those lines, you can't see out of it properly and feeling kind of sheepish, but sticking to my gun. <laughs> and then beyond that, it was things like the Timberwolf or the, the Mad Cat. It just is the iconic one, and it's a lot of fun to pilot, and it's not too heavy, it's not too light, and it's just it's a, a good medium. It's the Mario of the MechWarrior universe. <laughs> Hey, for there, for those of you listening at home, by the way, if you're near a device, um, the the BattleTech fan wiki is called Sarna.net, S-A-R-N-A. Uh, so if you go into Google and you type Sarna and then any of these words, so Sarna Marauder, you'll get a good you get to the article about that mech. You can see what we're talking about. All right, how about you, John? What what are some of your favorite mechs? Uh, for me, I think. Definitely, because I spent most of my time playing Mech 4, was probably uh, the Thor or the Summoner, if you want to use the clan terminology. I think that, for me, is the one, just because I, you know, I, I kind of preferred the, the slightly lighter mechs that were a little bit faster and more maneuverable. And the, yeah, you were, like, you, we, we sort of skipped over it, but you played online in a league, and you, and you yeah. played in a Summoner, right? Uh, I never got up to the Summoner, because the... The, the clan I was in, it was they were very, very uh, rigid and very sort of followed, you know, like based on your ranking, you could pilot certain mechs. So I was yeah, in okay. like, Shadowcat, I think, for the longest time because I had only earned the rank of Mech Warrior and I, I hadn't progressed any further than that. That's so the Shadowcat was, yeah, the Shadowcat was still, still good, but, you know, obviously not my mech of choice. <laughs> uh, but... Yeah, the leagues were, I mean, it, it was a ton of fun. It was, you know, because of the fact that everybody who played was very into the franchise, I think, much more than I ever was. And, and uh, you know, sort of followed the, the guidelines of the of the stories and, and the universe. It, it made it more appealing because it was very real, right? Like, we even had, like, a trial of position for uh, for me to earn my 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 rank of mech warrior so i actually had to go through that and like fight my i think it was the star commander at the time and fight him to just get to the rank of mech warrior so they they sort of brought the 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 lore and you know everything that en- encompassed the, the the books to the game essentially and, and just sort of stuck with it to sort of build that um you know that element of like of really role-playing those those characters are role playing being what it's like to be in a clan, I guess. So that's, that's so cool. Yeah, it, so it was really cool. I, I was only able to join them in a couple of uh, actual tournaments because my PC was not the greatest at the time. Uh, but it was really fun. Like, it, and they were just really nice guys, and uh, it was just a great experience to be able to play this game, you know, as sort of like a like a, a clan as a community. What was the uh, name of the group? Clan Hell's Horses, which and- I, I later, you know, I kind of looked looked it up and I, I, I realized like some of the the members of the clan who had like they had the actual blood names of 
like the clan house horses, like like dark. They were taking the lore very seriously. Yeah, yeah, it was very. They got really in in depth on it, and it was it was fascinating. Right? It was really interesting, and some of them okay. are still are still pretty active, like playing the Mech wow. Warrior online games, and you know they've just moved into other uh, sort of the, the, the later games essentially. Okay, so we got the the summoner. What does it look like? What sets it apart from other mechs? Uh, it's I guess it's it's kind of got an iconic look as well. It's it's you know it's in the intro to Mech Mech Two with the Clan Jade Falcon, and it's got the sort of the the LRMs, the missile launcher on the on the top next to the cockpit, and uh, it has sort of a distinctive kind of uh, chassis, I guess, but it's more. Humanoid, yeah, that, that asymmetrical yeah. look with the missile launcher up there. Yeah, it, it and then you look more, it made it look more alien, right? It didn't really look like a person because it, or it would be if their head was all the way over to the side. Yeah, yeah. So I that was definitely up there for me. And then I mean, some of the maybe the inner sphere max, probably the Uziel. And I always sort of went for the sort of the lighter, faster max that that could still punch hard. Hmm. So. Yeah, and and probably also the, the the Timberwolf, I'd say, definitely the iconic mech, and the one probably I uh, experimented a lot with in the mech lab. We all experimented in the mech lab. <laughs> I mean, you say no. that like it's a joke, but Not I more spent than more time building mechs, right, and configuring them than I probably did actually playing the game. Oh man, there's one thing, one story I can't believe we haven't touched on. Can you tell the story? I can't remember what game it was. It was probably three or four uh, of the time you were playing the game and took a shot to the cockpit. Oh, God. (laughs) This is embarrassing. Okay. (laughs) So when you're in the first-person MechWarrior games, when you're, like, it's it's simulating that you're in, like, something that's walking and this big, heavy, bounding thing. So the point of view sort of stutters up and down, right? Like you're bouncing around as as this heavy thing is taking its footsteps. And and, and I'd noticed this would happen before, is like this was at an age where I was spending too much time on the computer and not doing anything else. And when you spend all day with your point of view bouncing around, you sort of get those, that thing you get, like if you've been on a boat for too long and then you step onto dry land and you sort of like doesn't feel right. Yeah. So that was already a thing. But I was playing, I was, yeah, it was MechWarrior 3, and this enemy bushwhacker comes up over a hill. There's this squat little frog-like battle mech. It surprised me. It, I took a hit right to the cockpit. And because it's a super realistic game, like the cockpit all, sh- you know, the glass kind of shabs spider webs and cracks. And it surprised me because I didn't know he was there, and I took the hit. So I reared my head back, and... Like, it, like the effect was as if I was piloting this back and bounding about and then took a hit and it shook the cockpit and I leaned back. And I remember thinking to myself, like, haha, that's so funny. Like, oh, that's cool. It's like I was actually in there. And then my nose started to bleed. <laughs> <laughs> and what happened was that, like, I was living an incredibly unhealthy lifestyle and... <laughs> You know, and I, I just gave myself a nosebleed from jerking my head too suddenly. Um, and not I, I, being an AC-10 to the 
<laughs> yeah, but but the the blending of reality and fantasy there, even then as a teenager, it was like, okay, I think it's time to turn off the computer for a little while. <laughs> I need to go like outside and like like throw a ball in a hoop or something. <laughs> Okay. I wonder so, if it simulate those in the battle pods. <laughs> oh god, yeah, that was I was really into Mech Warrior guys. <laughs> All right, so what, my suspense is killing me. What are your favorite mechs? Oh my god, I don't know. Um, dire Wolf for sure. I'm assuming. No, top I, five. The Dire Wolf. Uh, top, yeah, Dire Wolf would hit my top five, sure. Yeah. But if I'm just doing like a top two, my god, it's. I, hmm, I I really like the Battlemaster, um, which is on the low end of the assault class, but it's one of the very humanoid-looking mechs. It's not even the best mech in its class, uh, but because it's it's considered like a command mech, like there's room for another guy in there to do like general stuff, and it's it's fairly quick but still fairly tough. Because of that, it, a lot of heroes pilot that mech. Hans Davian pilots that mech. Takashi Kurita pilots a Battlemaster. Like it's so purely for lore reasons, because those were like characters that I really liked growing up. So I'm, I'm always attached to that mech, and always kind of disappointed when its performance isn't up to what I want it to be. But I have that, you know, it's it's like the, the same reason that people love the Enterprise D, even though it's a stupid ship. It's, <laughs> It always comes back to that. (laughs) It's a good example, though. It's because I like what it's associated with, despite the whole stupid saucer separation. Um, I'll I'll stop. I'm sorry. I'm I'm intentionally yanking your chain now. Um, So the Battlemaster is definitely on my list. Ah, God, I have to pick. It's so hard. Um, In terms of gameplay, I spent a lot of time piloting a clan executioner. Uh, Gladiator mm-hmm. Inner Sphere sets a big, heavy mech, but still not so heavy. Like it's it's fast for its size, so it can still move a little. Uh, like the big like BattleTech, you you sort of feel like well, bigger must be better. I guess it can have more guns, but the giant hundred ton assault mechs barely move. It's like playing a turret. Like you're not even really playing a game. The Executioner was heavy enough that it like it could carry the coolest weapons and take a lot of hits but still just fast enough to make it interesting to drive. And particularly the B variant, its, its armament was a, an ERPPC, so, jeez, translate for the audience. Uh, so a big, long-range, heavy lightning gun in one arm, an Ultra AC-20 in the other, so a giant, like, naval cannon, and then a small, like, like a, just, just a little medium laser for chip damage. And I liked the one-two punch of, you know, the, the PPC, and then the autocannon, and then finish him off with the gun. That sounds I great. Just, yeah, so mm. I piloted that one a lot. But there's so many others. I mean, like the, the Atlas. <laughs> the Atlas is so iconic. That's that's sort of taking the Timberwolf spot as the, you know, as the primo mech that's on a lot of the art now. It's got this big skull for a head. It's it's for my birthday recently. John got me this Atlas that like you plug it. it it's a little statue. It's, it sits on my bookshelf, but you press a button, it lights up and spins around and like, it makes little shooty noises. Yeah, it's I guess so that's cool. like the Inner Sphere sort of flagship mech, right? Yeah, that's their, their biggest, baddest mech. Which is, that's yeah. great. And the Axeman in the cartoon, the hero of the cartoon pilots a 2N variant of the Axeman. It's, it's, it's a cool battle mech with lasers and missiles, but also this cool, like, one-handed axe in it that you can just use to smash people. 
ah, God, I just, it's, it's, there's so many mechs and I love so many of them. I own 11, I think, technical readout books, which are intended to be supplementary material for playing the role playing game. Like, if you really want to get into the lore, and all they are is blueprints of all these different battle mechs. God, like, I just, like, literally, like, 11. Yeah. <laughs> I thought there were, I thought you had a lot more than just 11. Well, I have 11 technical readouts. I also have the source books and the oh, histories. Okay. I have about, I have closer to 20 of those. And then I have about 60 of the paperbacks. 60? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, they're not all good. Yeah, I remember they're not all good. quite a lot. <laughs> but yeah, they're, those those don't quite make it to the bookshelf in like the, like, like they're in the bedroom, right? They're not, they're, right. They're, like we have more sophisticated books on the bookshelves right. where other people can see. <laughs> Just bedroom reading. Yeah, there you go. Like light bedroom reading. <laughs> yeah. We're wandering off topic, but yeah, just like the mechs are like each there are so many different designs and they all have cool stories attached to them and so many of them do such cool different stuff. Uh, just ah oh, god, it's so delicious. There's so many layers to that. And you I, I feel like we can't end without talking a little bit about the cartoon. I, we've done this whole thing, and we haven't talked about the Saturday morning cartoon that there was for this thing, just to, again, emphasize how popular it was at one point. Yeah, God. The the only cartoon in the world that I can't seem to find nowadays. You can find... the People have posted like their VHS tapes of it to YouTube, complete with static and like little break-ins identifying the channel. <laughs> but yeah, there are 13 episodes of the Battletech cartoon that take place during the initial clan invasion. Um, <laughs> and, they're, and they're not bad as far as Saturday morning cartoons go. One of the things that set it apart was that they had some CG in it, and it was pretty groundbreaking for the time, right? For the time, yeah. The, the clan's enhanced imaging, and then instead of being hand-drawn, it would go into these early computer models. So cool. Oh my god. Um, the cartoon, and, and also, God, the cartoons do these cool things where they, like, they try to discuss the origin of the clans, and they really sum it up, because they, they have to tell it in three minutes to an audience of ten-year-olds. Um, and there's a lot of, like, well, that's not really canon, because they're they're trying to, you know, they, they don't get some of the details wrong. But then there are other tiny details into it that pay so much attention to the lore. They're, um... I mentioned before, going out to get the Draconis Combine, the Japanese one that sort of run their culture on top of the poor Swedish guys who eventually get their own nation. At one point, the Draconis Combine jump ship, the captain of it turns out to be a traitor. And the whole time, that character has had a Swedish accent. And they never talk about Rasselhag. Like, they never meant, like, that's not a part of the cartoon. It's, it's, it's too much to bring in. But the Battletech fan knows, like, oh, that's why he, that's why he's like that. Like, little references like that. There's a character in the cartoon who is involved in all these noble, he's the illegitimate son of a prince, basically. It's the fast, fast version. And in the books, this illegitimate child is whisked away as a baby and is never written about again. But that, as an adult, the character shows up in the cartoon, and that story arc ends there. Wow. Like, started in the novels and ends in the cartoons. So there was some really deep dipping into the world and keeping that consistency there. So great appeal for the people who like, you know, are interested in that world building. And then just also so much fun having these different characters pilot these computer-generated robots around and blast each other. <laughs> and, 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 God, that was so much fun. 
Okay, let's. Uh, do we have any final thoughts, Mister Jonathan Stephen? You're our our special guest for this hour and twenty minutes so far. What what final thoughts do you have on this franchise? Um, I, I mean, it's I you know I've been playing them for for so long, and I just feel like uh, you know I'm just waiting for the, the next rendition of it to just really do a service to you know this this universe and these games. Is it's just fantastic, really. I I have been very interested in trying BattleTech, but I don't think I've got the time or the the computer to handle it. So I may try and find Mech Commander somewhere and, and play that because this has really caused an itch in me that I didn't expect <laughs> to, to have. You'd probably pick up Mech Commander too. I'm I'm guessing at this point. Uh, there's actually there's a fan there's a fan compiled version of Mech Commander Gold that you could just download as an ISO. All you have to do is mm-hmm. mount it. Um, you should be able to find it with some quick googling. It's, it's free now, um, but if you can't, let me know. I know I've got it somewhere. Okay. Uh, what are your final thoughts, Jesse? Um, we decided to do this episode because I keep mentioning on the show that I've mentioned BattleTech before, and I've been embarrassed to go into detail about it. I love this franchise, and I really don't understand why it isn't bigger than it is, and I would encourage everyone listening just to check out whatever element of it sounds like it's cool to you. Like, if you're interested in the story sounds compelling, if the setting sounds good, check out the books. Like, there's so many cool stories and characters, the Kellhounds, even the, 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 the Falcon trilogy. Like, there's so much to it. You could find some cool stuff there. If you're a gamer and, like, you're looking for things to do with friends over the table, over Zoom now, but... You know, to do on a Friday night to play a board game, check out the tabletop. Admittedly, not it's a little bit slow, but it has it's a really cool, intricate game, and it's it's really separate from everything else out there. If you're into the video games, try the Mech Warrior games. So the Mech Warrior Five is okay, but all the older ones you can find them and online and find ways to play them. And it, it's just so much that you, for you to do in there. Um, BattleTech, I think there's so much potential to be explored, and I want to encourage more people to explore it and get into it because I want to see it grow, and it means a lot to me. That was very powerful. Well said, Jesse. Yes. Uh, well, on the, yeah. On that note, I think it's time for. I think people want to listen to something else. <laughs> So that was Geek Top 5's talk on Battletech. John, thanks so much for joining in. It's, it doesn't feel Thank right you. to talk about it without all three of us here. Yeah, definitely. Thank you so much, John. And it was great to have you here. Well, special th- so thanks to you, John. Extra special thanks go out, as always, to Jamie Reum, our musician-in-chief, the guy who made our theme song. Reum is spelled R-E-A-U-M-E. Check him out on YouTube at Jamie Reum Official or on Instagram at Jamie underscore Reum. And, uh, hey, listen, someone else out there must play Battletech or even just have must have questions about it, and I would love to talk to you about it. Please get in touch with us. Um, Graham, you've got the whole list. How can people reach out? We have a wonderful email address, geektop5 at gmail.com. We also have a Facebook page, facebook.com slash geektop5. We are on Twitter at geektop5, and we've got our own website, www.geektop5.com. Please contact us any way you can and tell all your friends and loved ones about how much you love the show. 
Geek Top 5 is available in your podcatcher of choice. We're on iTunes, we're on Stitcher, we're on Spotify. There's no good excuse not to listen. I promise there will probably not be more episodes entirely devoted to Battletech. We'll have to see. There's a lot more to talk about. You'll find out what happens next week. Until then, I'm Jesse. I'm Graham. And this has been Geek Top 5. We'll talk to you again next week.